Gospels to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1 is where our, we will begin our text from this morning. Uh, the, the aim in the series um, that this we've called Incarnation is meant to do one thing for us, right? So um, if you've been coming the last two weeks or coming this week or the next three, uh, there's, there's only one aim that I have in this, and that is to get us to see and Savior, to rejoice in and to be blown away by the good news of the gift of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so the first week we looked at John chapter 1, verse 14, where he wrote those beautiful words, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We looked at the reality of Jesus becoming human and why it's so foundational for all of our joy in, in every aspect. You see, without Christmas, there's no joy or calls for celebration. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, then we have not seen the light and in darkness we still dwell. But thanks be to God, he has come. We have seen the light. And therefore, we can have great joy. And then last week, we looked at the incarnation as the ground for all gift-giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, because Jesus was the gift given to us, uh, it actually makes meaning to all other gifts that we are able to give. Uh, because he was a gift from the Father to us, we can rejoice when we give gifts to other people. And what I want to do in our time this morning is for a few moments consider the beauty of the reality that Jesus took on material reality and what that means in our physical and material lives today. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we, we love you. We, we thank you for your word that uh, is the standard by which we know all things. Um, it's through your word that we realize uh, that we are dead in our sins apart from Christ. And it's through your word that we are uh, enlightened to and understanding the gospel and the good news of Jesus coming to be with us means. And so, Father, Lord, as we uh, take a few moments to consider uh, what it means uh, this morning, particularly in our own lives, in our own place, uh, I pray that you would open our eyes, let us see wondrous and beautiful things from your word. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. So if you're in First John, say amen. Need more time, say hold up. Well, just in case you need more time, let me give you a little bit of the context before we dive into the first four verses here. This letter is written to believing Christians. Uh, John says that throughout the letter that he's writing to those who already believe. Uh, 1 John 2, 21, he says that. Uh, he's writing to believers that need to hear the truth about a particular thing. Uh, particularly what, what John is after is to get people to see that Jesus Christ in the flesh, in, in, in human form, was fully divine and also fully human. Well, that's just the whole point of why he's writing this letter. And so John speaks authoritatively about the truth of the incarnation of Jesus. Uh, and, and here's the reason. that They needed to hear this doctrine uh, of Jesus because they begin to hear false teachings, right? They begin to hear false teachers uh, that would deny the materiality of Jesus. They would say things like, Jesus only appeared to be a man, but wasn't truly man. Uh, and, and so John sets out to, to write this letter to them. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. The text says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
John opens his letter with this complete description of what he's talking about here. And he gives us uh, three things uh, in these four verses that he wants uh, his readers to understand. Um, So let me give those to you and then I'll get out your way. Number one, he wants them to see that the subject of what he's about to say is entirely centered on Jesus Christ. Notice the message he wants them to look at. Look at the end of verse one. Uh, He says, we've done all these things. And then he says, concerning the word of life. So whatever John is going to share next in his letter, he, he wants his readers to understand that all of it, every aspect of it is grounded in and is rooted firm in and about this word of life. So what does John mean by word of life? Well, no doubt he, he's referring to Jesus Christ. You know, John uh, 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? He's, he's, he's talking like, so I want to, he says, we've seen these things, we've touched, we've heard, uh, we've done all these things concerning Jesus Christ. This becomes clear in the second verse where he says that the life was made manifest and we've seen it. What, what in the world is John talking about here? He's talking about um, uh, uh, Jesus. John is saying that everything he's getting ready to write about is centered upon and grows out of the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ showed up in the flesh. You see, John has been so radically transformed in his life that uh, because he understood that in Jesus is life eternal and that outside of Christ, there is no such thing as life. That's, that's, that's the weight of his words here. Outside of Christ, there's only darkness, death, destruction. But in Jesus, in this word of life, there, uh, there is life and, and life eternal. And John is continually blown away by the fact that Jesus like, actually showed up that he was made manifest, right? That's why he's using this, these words. He says in verse two, we, we've seen him. And not only have we seen it, uh, uh, but it is him we proclaim to you. So in verse two, John, John has that this life, this life eternal uh, was with the Father. No doubt, uh, he, he's wanting his readers to remember what he's already written, right? From, from John chapter one. Uh, so John's letter is, is primarily about one thing and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ, but he, he not only gives them the, 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 the what he's writing about, he gives them the reason why he's writing it, uh, which, is for their fellow, which is for fellowship and joy. Look at verse 3, 3 and 4. He says, That which we have heard, seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that. And this so that there is very important. Uh, in, in other words, what, what John is saying is that I'm writing uh, in order that, or to, to bring about something in your life that isn't currently there, right? He, he's not writing simply uh, so that we might hear the words, read the words, nod our heads, and then walk away completely unchanged. He, he's writing it so that they can be changed by it. He's writing in order to bring about fellowship with himself and with the Father and with Jesus Christ. In other words, the reason John is writing his letter is so that the reader would understand that when an individual says something like, well, I believe in Jesus Christ, that what that means is he now has fellowship with all the other believers in Jesus. And that there exists this type of brotherhood and a fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ his Son. But he's also writing according to verse 4 that their joy or our joy might be complete. In other words, it exists that these believers and followers of Jesus might not have the full experience of joy that is theirs in Christ. And so, 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 so notice that. Don't, don't miss that, right? He's saying that, uh, that there could exist a possibility for you, Christian, here today to miss out. You might even say that I love Jesus, following Jesus, disciple of Jesus, and still yet miss out 
on joy. Your joy might not be complete. And so he's writing to address this. He, he puts pen to paper so that they might not get sucked into a type of teaching that would lead to less joy than what is actually theirs. But, but, it, but the point is that he's writing with intention, right? He's writing for a purpose. And we need not miss this. We live in a day uh, where we are constant consumers of, of information. Constant consumers. One of the downsides of, of, of that kind of uh, highly cognizant, highly aware, highly connected living is that we can often miss what's actually happening underneath the hood. Right? We view so much of the world through a, a set of lenses uh, which, which kind of views everything as neutral, don't we? So, so let me give you an example. Um, how many of you all seen the movie Frozen? Okay, a couple of you. Yeah, praise God. Uh, maybe. Uh, how, how many of you uh, uh, could probably have the words memorized to the whole movie? I have three daughters. It's a, it's, a, it's a high up there on the list of movies we've watched over and over again. But here's my question for you. Is Frozen a good movie or a bad movie? Think about it. Think about it. This is what I, I've been doing with my kids a lot. Uh, you know, my, my daughter's recently started reading a lot. Um, and she, like, she reads out loud, so we hear it all, uh, which is great. Um, but the, uh, the other day I was making breakfast and she was reading the story of Heidi. You all know the story of Heidi, old classic story. Uh, she got like two chapters in and I called her over for breakfast. And just to see, like sometimes your kids just go through the motions. They're like, do they actually know what they're reading? And so I said, hey, Marley, you like that story? She said, yeah, love it. I said, uh, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And she said, well, I don't know if there is a good guy or a bad guy, Dad. I said, well, well, let's replay the events. Tell me what happened in the story, right? And so if, on a little side note, if you're not familiar with it, it's been a while since you've read that, that classical literature, right? It's the idea that like uh, uh, young Heidi's getting dropped off to live with someone else, right? And, and the lady says like, uh, my time is done. I've had you for two years. It's time for you to go live with somebody else. And I said, so I said, Marley, was, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Right, so often we view life through this, uh, this type of uh, understanding that everything's like neutral, right? It's not good or bad, Pastor. And I would press before you that it's all good or bad. As a matter of fact, there is no neutral ground. Take, go back to uh, the movie uh, Frozen, for example. Anybody know what the number one song in that uh, movie is? Let it go. Let it go. Is that a good song or a bad song? Here's what Tim, Car- uh, Tim Keller had this uh, to say. He was giving a talk about how society has moved from a traditional society and understanding our roles and identity as coming primarily from a sense of community and who we're tied in with to more uh, our sense of identity is, is wholly wrapped up in this individualistic understanding of ourselves in the, in the world. Right? He says this, The new late modern narrative, however, goes beyond merely understanding and directing our own passions to enthroning them. So, so he's talking here about how we view our passions, right, our desires, the things that bubble up, uh, our loves and our affections. And, and he says like, uh, how we believe that if our passions are the, truly the only thing that should tell us what is right and wrong in the world. He goes on, in es- its essence is captured by the words of the song, Let It Go, in the Disney movie Frozen. The song is sung by a character determined no longer to be the good girl that her family and society had wanted her to be. Instead, she should let go and express what she has been holding back inside. There is no right, no wrong, no rules for me. This is a good example of expressive individualism, 
Identity is not realized as in traditional societies, but uh, is coming about from our own individual desires for the good of our own family uh, and people. Instead, we become ourselves only by asserting our individual desires against society, by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams regardless of what anyone says. Like, (laughs) I wonder, have you exegeted the movies you watch? Have you looked at the reality that you live in and started weighing it through the lens of Scripture? Is, is this good or bad? Now listen, we, our kids still watch Disney, but like this is, takes us back to like, okay, like what's the message being taught? Subliminally so, right? They're not aggressively coming out and saying, uh, don't listen to mom and dad, do whatever you want. But in a sense, isn't that what they're saying? Let it go. Even in children's songs, we are being shaped and formed. There is no such thing as neutrality. It doesn't exist. So the secular world would have us say that like uh, religion and politics doesn't belong, right? They don't mix. Keep your Christianity at home, uh, and we will figure out our own secular society and rules. But the question is not whether or not morality will be legislated. The question is, Whose, re- whose morality will be legislated? It's not as if we strip back all layers of religion, that we somehow have this pure and holistic form of, of the good, if we don't have a definition of what the good actually is. And so it is with every word of Scripture. It's meant to shape us, form us, not to be something we merely nod our heads to over and over and move on, not being changed by it. So, so John is writing this. Don't miss this. He's writing about this, everything he's getting ready to say, which is that Jesus Christ has come, he's lived among us, he's changed us, and he has said why he is writing, like the the reason why he writes is for our fellowship and our joy. But I also want you to see the way that he received the message. Right, John receives the message through normal earthiness. Normal earthiness. Notice specifically what he wants them to understand about the message. Uh, Look look at verse one again. He, He gives them four things here. He says, from the beginning, uh, no doubt John has in mind, uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Word was with God, the Word was God. You see, John wants the readers to know that everything that Jesus did and said was connected with the entire Old Testament. He wants them and you and I to know that this isn't a new religion, but on the contrary, this is the oldest religion of them all. This one goes all the way back, back to the very very beginning. But then he next gives three characteristics, massively important in us understanding everything else. Listen, he says they, they, they heard with their ears. They have seen with their eyes, and they have looked upon and touched with their hands. John's point in all of this is that Jesus was a real man. A real man. He was not a disembodied spirit. He was not just an idea. He was not good vibes. He was not an angel. He was, however, very real. So let's slow down here for a minute. Notice the first thing he says. They could hear them with their ears. This means that as Jesus took a breath, opened his mouth, and that same breath passed over very real vocal cords, creating vibrations in the air that then reverberated uh, and were received by John and the other disciples' ears that they understood it because Jesus spoke in a language that they could understand. Think about this. This Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who in the beginning made all things by speaking, 
and brings the entire cosmos into existence with a word. That same Jesus, John is saying, he spoke again and we heard it. It wasn't a dream. We actually heard him speak. And everything he spoke was true. Take for example, he says, we could see them, we could see him with our eyes. This means that as Jesus stood in the midst of John and the other disciples, uh, the, 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 the light of the sun, some 93 million miles away, came hurling through space and time at 186,000 miles per second, and it landed on God in the flesh and reflected back to the eyes of John and the other disciples. Think about this. This Jesus who hung the sun in the sky was a sun in the sky that is so powerful that if you look at it for less than 100 seconds, it would burn your eyeballs out. And yet John says, we looked at Jesus with our own eyes and we seen him face to face. They could touch them with their hands. This means that when Jesus walked by, they could stick out their fingers and feel the warmth from his skin. Can you imagine what a handshake with the one who told the seeds you can only go this far might feel like? Can you imagine what kind of handshake that might be? Or can you imagine what a hug would feel like from the one who stretched the east uh, from the west? See, he embraced you and a warm hug might feel like. This is the earthiness that John is referring to. He says, listen, we've, we've been there. We've been with the one. We've been with Jesus Christ. And we're here to tell you it's, it's, it's real. It's real. John is also the, the, the one who uh, told us that uh, Jesus wept, right? Gospel of John, he, he says, Jesus, Jesus wept. Why do you think John included that in his gospel? Why did John include such a, such a small detail, right? It's almost in passing, like um, we've all been to uh, uh, funerals, uh, perhaps and then went home and told someone else about the funeral. Have you ever stopped and commented on the fact that someone, someone was weeping? Well, of course not, because that's just expected. At a funeral, people weep, people cry, people mourn. And so when you, when you go home and uh, you're with other people, and they say, well, how was it? You, you're not stuck on the details of, yeah, like these people were weeping, but John does. John says, Jesus, Jesus wept. Right? He's doing all this to remind the readers that Jesus was very real. He was truly in the flesh. He was a real human, fully God, fully man. You see, Jesus was the fountain of life and knew what it was to be thirsty. Jesus was the bread of life and knew what it was to be hungry. Jesus was the source of all energy, energy and yet knew what it meant to grow tired. Jesus was the radiance of the Father and knew what it was to be cold. Jesus was the joy of Jehovah and knew what it was to be sorrowful. Jesus was the one from whom all life flowed and knew what it was to lose a friend. Jesus was the life everlasting and knew what it was to face death. In other words, Jesus was real man. He faced real human trials and real human joys. In other words, God the creator experienced the life of the creation this is why Jesus gives us the shortest verse in the Bible that Jesus Well, And I think one reason so many people are comforted by that one verse is because it gets at the heart of what John is saying here in 1 John 1. 1. That he was real. He was there. Can I give you a few more? I, I was in my office thinking about this. Uh, these aren't directly stated in the Bible, but they are necessarily true given what the Bible teaches. Here they are. Jesus had a runny nose. Jesus had his diapers changed. Jesus shivered on a cold night. 
Jesus stubbed his toes. Jesus cooked delicious dinners. Jesus drank milk from his mother's breast. Jesus told jokes, which should make some of you people loosen up a bit. Jesus smelled the flowers. Jesus sweated on a hot afternoon. Jesus cried in the middle of the night as an infant, regardless of what we just sang. Jesus got splinters. Jesus clipped his own nails and had his hair cut. Jesus listened to the birds chirping. Jesus had big belly laughs. Jesus had his beard trimmed. Jesus coughed. I wonder, do you view Jesus like that? Or have you so separated? He's just spirit. Do you view Jesus as, have you meditating on him long enough to, to use real human terms and real human experiences to understand who this man is? Because that's what John is after here in verse 1. The thing about this list of Jesus' experiences is how utterly common they are. Utterly common. Every one of us have probably experienced everything in that list. It's experiences that you and I have. And this really gets to the heart of the theological, uh, the theological heart of the entire incarnation. The heart of the entire incarnation is that Jesus did not merely reach down into the muck and the mire where you and I all live our lives with an outstretched hand and and put us up on a solid rock. That's not the heart of the incarnation. Rather, the heart of it is that Jesus stepped into the muck and into the mire of our sin. He, He took on flesh. He became like one of us, though without sin. And he didn't just stay with us at the bottom of the barrel. He got into the muck and the mire and hoisted us up out of it. You see, with one hand, Jesus puts his hand on your shoulder, and with the other hand, he puts it under your thighs, and he throws you with the strength of all the men that have ever existed out of the pit. This is the theological heart of the incarnation. This is what it means when we say God with us, God as one of us, God who saves us. But this isn't all that there is to the incarnation. You see, Jesus, after Jesus paid the price for us to be thrown out of the pit, he himself climbed out of that pit, raised with incorruptible flesh. And after he shook the dust off that incorruptible flesh, he stepped up upon the rock of ages and beckoned us to come on over and stand on the solid rock himself. And then he showed us and reminded us uh, of what those opening words of the Bible uh, were as he pointed out all of God's creation. He pointed to the trees and said, you see those, Matt, those are good. He pointed to houses and churches. He pointed to rivers and mountains. He pointed to roads and bridges. He pointed to jobs and careers. And in all of it, he said, this is good. He then pointed to men and women, the original artificial intelligence, the original clay pots, those still busted and broken, those still cracked and failing. And he said, this is very good. He restated the original creation mandate as the Great Commission. Though one did not outshine the other, uh, for the original mission that God created the world was not done away with. You, You realize this. We are still to be fruitful. We are still to multiply. We are still to have dominion over all the created world, for that is why he created us. But he gives us a new reality, for the original story has been recapitulated that now Christ reigns as king. We'll spend more idea on this, this idea, more time on this idea in two weeks uh, when we consider what the new reality that the incarnation brings for us. If Jesus truly does, uh, as the song Joy to the World says, uh, he rules the world, how should we then live? 
But for now, let's turn, return to the theological heart of the incarnation. You see, Jesus had to become a man because Adam was a man. Go to Romans chapter 5. Flip over there real quick for me. Romans chapter 5. Meet me there. Jesus had to become a man because Adam was a man. This is the theological heart of the incarnation. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 17. This is Paul writing. He says this uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespasses death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so, so Paul's doing something here. Don't miss it. He's, he's saying, let, he, let me, let's summarize this. He says uh, that Adam's sinful action is now that story that, that uh, mankind has told themselves generation through generation has now been recapitulated with Christ's righteous action. You see, he says that, that Adam, uh, in, in sinning, that death has come to humanity. And this is true. Was this not the promise of God the, 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 that if in the day that they eat of the fruit of the tree, then they will surely die, right? And so God kept that promise And Adam and all of us in Adam fell underneath the covenantal curse of disobeying. You see, death comes to humanity because of one man's actions, all of us in Adam. And yet, grace and life come to humanity because of another man's actions. You see, it was because of Christ's action on our behalf that grace and life now come to every person in faith. Number two, that the condemnation to humanity came about because of Adam, right? One man's sin, one man's fall into sin. Not only was death introduced to all humanity, but Paul says in these verses that, uh, that we all right now, while still living and breathing, all of us stand condemned before a holy God because of Adam. And yet, it's because of Christ that justification and life come to humanity. Because of one man's action, of following God, listening completely and perfectly to his word, that justification of life come. Uh, he says that, that Adam's, uh, because, uh, because of Adam's sin in the garden, that humanity becomes sinful. And now, now, now notice this. It's not like uh, anyone who has kids, I think, realizes this, right? Uh, the idea that even children are sinful. Like, uh, how many of y'all sent your kids off to sinner school? Nobody. And yet here they are. Why? Well, because what Adam says is that even our very nature has become corrupted. That's what Paul is saying here. Humanity becomes sinful, but on the flip side, because of the work of Christ, because of one man's righteousness, that now in him, in new life, we become righteous. Through faith, we become righteous. And then finally, he says that the, uh, the law highlights sin's victory in wrong and death. When the law came, it showed us exactly how sinful, how wicked we actually are. And then when grace comes because of Jesus, it highlights his victory in eternal life. You see, Jesus was the second Adam. Jesus had to become a man to save mankind. The Christmas story began in the garden. 
And the Christmas story will end in a garden, according to Revelation. Just this past week, I was talking with Marley, um, and we were talking about the book of Ruth. And, uh, you know, we were home, and we were, like, fixing dinner. I had just gotten home from work. And uh, she says, hey, Dad, uh, you know, the, the, the story of Ruth is, uh, is, is a love story. I looked at her and I said, that's great, honey. I said, the story of Ruth is actually a Christmas story. And both the kids look at me like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And so in order to kind of slow it down for them, I said, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're staring at me confused about Christmas, wondering how in the world this love story uh, of Ruth and famine and unable to have kids uh, could possibly be a Christmas story. And so I said, hey, hey Marley, just, um, again, you always want to test your kids. Are they actually reading? Are they actually comprehending? Do they understand? I said, tell me what the story of Ruth is. Just tell me. And so she walks through the whole story of the book of Ruth, right? She says, well, like, there was this, there was this couple and they were, they were in, uh, 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 and I said, Bethlehem. She said, yeah, they're in Bethlehem. And they, they leave and they, they, they go uh, because of something. I said, it's because of famine. She said, yeah, they didn't have any food. Uh, so they're, they're going to, uh, 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 and I said, Moab. She said, yeah, 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 they're going to Moab, Dad. Uh, and, and there in Moab, the sons get married, and then the sons die, and the father dies, and all that's left is the women, Dad. And so uh, Naomi decides to go back. Uh, Naomi decides to go back home. And I said, where are they going again? She said, Bethlehem. I said, yeah, where was Jesus born again? And at that moment, she's starting to think, what's he doing? What's he doing? I said, keep, keep, keep going. She said, well, they're on their way back, and then one of the, one of the girls says uh, she doesn't want to go, but, but one of them will go with him. I said, yeah, that's Ruth, right? That's her confession of faith. She says, I will go with you. Your God will be my God, your people, my people. I said, she, she's, she's aligning herself with, with Naomi. And so she, she says, well, Dad, they get back. And they don't have any food. So uh, Naomi tells Ruth to, uh, to go out into the field and get some food. And that's when uh, Boaz, dad, this is the love story of Boaz and Ruth. Uh, she meets Boaz in the field uh, and he gives her food. And she comes home, she tells Naomi. And she says, you know what she does next, dad? I said, what does she do, honey? She says, Naomi tells Ruth to go lay at his feet. Isn't that weird, dad? I said, yeah, sure is, honey. Uh, and so I said, what? She says, anyway, uh, they get married. Uh, and they have a kid, and so now the kid becomes uh, Naomi's, and Naomi gets to help raise him. Oh, by the way, just a shout-out to Margaret. Yeah, she, she got the story. Uh, our, our, kids, our kids are always listening, whether we think they are or not. And then she's like, so, Dad, how in the world is that a Christmas story? I said, well, honey, let me, let me retell you the story of Ruth. And I retold her, and I pointed out all the instances of how the story of Ruth is actually tied to the whole Old Testament. I said, honey, uh, do you remember what the, the, the son's name was? Who was Ruth's son's name? She said, I don't know. I said, that's okay. His name was Obed. Um, you know who Obed is? No, I don't know who Obed is. I said, well, Obed then grows up, and he has a son. He gets married and has a son. You know what his name is? No, I don't know what his name is, Dad. I said, his name is Jesse. She said, okay. I said, you know who Jesse is? She said, no. I said, well, that's okay. Jesse grows up, and he also has a son. Uh, you know what his name is? No, I don't know what his name is, Dad. I said, his name's David. You ever heard of David? She said, oh, like, like David and Goliath? And Abram's over and listening to the point. He says, King David? I said, yeah, that David, son. King David. Yes, David, the one who killed Goliath. Uh, that, that David. I said, so what does that make uh, Ruth and Boaz to David? And I'm thinking, I'm saying, again, because I'm ready to eat at this point and dinner served. I said, well, is it, it makes uh, Ruth and Boaz David's great-grandparents. They said, oh. I said, and, and, and David will eventually have a son. Do you know his name? And then Abram, Abram pipes in because he's, he's, he's starting to put the pieces together. He says, that's the snake crusher, Dad. That's the snake crusher. 
I said, that is. And who's the snake crusher? They said, God. I said, yeah, that, more specific though. Uh, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus Christ comes from David. And I was like, oh. I said, well, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, remember in the beginning? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They said, God made the world. <laughs> and we go for like a 10-minute tangent on God made trees, God made the wells, God made beetles, God made cars. I was like, well, he didn't make cars. He made people who made cars. But anyway, go ahead. Um, and I'm like, uh, and then what happens? They said, well, they eat the fruit uh, and, and they get kicked out of the garden. I said, yeah, but in the, in the, when, when God is punishing them, what does he say? What does he say? And that's where Abram again piped up. He says, the snake's going to get crushed, Dad. I said, that's right. That's right, son. Even in the garden, God promised that he would send the one to crush the head of the serpent. His heel would be bruised, but the head would be crushed. I said, son, that's a, that's a Christmas story. That's a Christmas story. The whole Bible, by the way, is this. The whole Old Testament is merely the introduction to the Christmas story. So, so what's the application for us today in closing? Uh, Jesus came in the flesh. He came in real time and in real material and real physical being. This means then that our physical and material bodies and lives are not evil in and of themselves. It means that the reality in which we find ourselves is not sinful in and of itself. Do you hear that? If, if, if all human flesh is merely sinful in and of itself, then what does that say about our Lord? What does that say about King Jesus? Well, it would say that he would be sinful. So then the implication of Jesus coming in the flesh and redeeming a people for himself is, is that, that, that the physical, material world is not evil in itself. How we interact with it can be, but in and of it by itself is not sinful. You see, we should view all of our embodied physical lives through the lives, uh, uh, through, through the lives of Jesus. The tendency in our day and age is to somehow view material world evil, spiritual world good. Right? We're very simple like that. We say physical world bad, spiritual world good. But and this leads to all sorts of twisted applied theology, does it not? Because if that's true, if spiritual is good, physical is bad, what does that say then about our vocations? What does it say about the implication of the way we view how we work? The outcome of that type of thinking is that, well, then pastors, missionaries, theologians are really the only people who are doing God's work because they're spending all their days thinking about the deep things of God. It also leads to a thinking that God doesn't really care about our jobs or what we do, which couldn't be farther from the truth. The reality is that because Jesus became incarnate, your job, your vocation matters a great deal. Whether you're a janitor or a CEO, whether you're raising babies or teaching in a classroom, your physical life matters. Remember, Christianity just doesn't affect the thoughts between our ears, but every single aspect of our lives. John said he's writing so that you would have fellowship and joy. Why do so many Christians walk around without joy? Have you not understood that God cares about you? He cares about your physical body. He cares about your real life, and how could he not? He himself put on flesh. And by the way, he still has a body. Like, think about it. Like right now, sitting in the throne room of heaven is dust. Think about that. The connection between the created and the uncreated. Think about Jesus having a real body, though incorruptible. And because of that, that should fill us with great joy. 
Right? John says later in the same, uh, same, same, same book, John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, he says, Do not love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What John means by this is not that the physical reality around us is sinful in and of itself. What John means is that we're not to love the sinfulness of the world. We're not meant to love the system of the world, love our sinful flesh and desires, not to love, uh, not to love our boasting or our bragging. All of that, he says in the very next verse, all of that will pass away. But friends, we are to love the earth. We should be people who know what real grass feels like. This is God's kingdom. This is why Jesus teaches us uh, that when you pray, pray uh, that, that, that his kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. So last week, the main application idea for us was to lovingly celebrate our Lord's birth by celebrating through giving gifts. The, the main point today, and I'm going to close with this, is that we are to lovingly celebrate our Lord's birth by loving the good world that he has created and enjoying it. Love the good, hate the evil, and lift Christ high over it all. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word, which challenges us, forms us, shapes us, conforms us into the image of Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would laugh deep, that we would smell the rose, that we would watch the thousands of different kinds of birds that you've created. Lord, you uh, are a creator, and you have created us in your image, making us creators as well. Lord, may we look at your world and wait, may, we, um, may we love it, may we enjoy it, love the good, hate the evil, Father, Lord, that this is how we live as Christians today. This is how we are supposed to celebrate the birth of Christ today. And so, Father, would you empower us? Would you give us strength? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us all the things we need to know how to walk in a society which has, uh, does not love you, does not honor you? And may we stand flat-footed upon the gospel, Father, Lord, uh, fully understand the implications of it in our daily lives, not just our spiritual, but our physical lives, Father. Lord, pray you help us with all this and much more. And it's in Jesus' uh, beautiful and mighty name we pray. Amen.